Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and as always, my co-host, Mr. Paddy Farrell. Hello, young Gary, and hello to our, our beautiful audience. How are you? I'm actually pretty good, although there is, you know, the whole Ukraine conflict going on. And while I like war, I like reading about war, I like military stuff and history stuff. War is never nice when you actually see it. Nope. But anyway, look, we're not here to chat shit about the global situations. Um, <clears throat> what are we here to talk about today, Gary? We're here to talk about information and evidence and how one might come to a decision about what they do with their health. And specifically what we're talking about is the concept of evidence-based practice, okay, or how we use evidence to inform decisions related to training, nutrition, and health more broadly. Because a lot of this information in terms of evidence-based practice is applied to medicine and medicine-adjacent fields, okay? So things like, uh, you know, how do you know if a drug works, okay? How do you know if a particular treatment works? You have to study it, and the way in which you study that determines the reliability or validity of that information. So in this podcast, what we want to do is leave you in a position where you understand a little bit more about how decisions are made, um, how to assess the quality of evidence, and therefore to hopefully make better decisions related to your own health, your own training, your own nutrition, etc. Now, this is not intended to be for an academic audience. You know, the, the intent here is not for you to be able to go in do your own research after this or to have an in-depth ability to appraise research papers or anything, but rather to have a more broad, big picture understanding of why certain information might be a bit more reliable than other information. Because you see this all the time where someone will make a claim, for example, on the internet, and someone might send them a link um, saying, oh, no, that's not true. Read this paper. But, you know, what makes that different from sending an article or an anecdote from a friend. That's what we want you to get out of this podcast. Okay. And I think a lot of it is intuitive, but I think it, you will have a lot more clarity at the end of this. Yeah. And like, you have to remember that for the vast majority of human history, like the, the intuitive and the more anecdotal stuff was the way we communicated was the way we, you know, viewed the world. It's only been whatever, 400 years that we've had the, what you would call something like the scientific method, although throughout history there has been, you know, periods of time where there's been more or less of that, you know, a closer and closer grasping towards that different parts of the world, etc. You know, um, but we really only had like 400 years or so of the scientific method, and the scientific method is not intuitive. It's not like it, it is intuitive once you've been exposed to it, but it's still not intuitive in terms of how it actually occurs. You know, like when we're talking about the stuff that we do and, you know, we're talking about like health and fitness related stuff, right? Like a lot of the stuff that has been done for the last, you know, eons is just, oh, I do this thing and I seem to get a result from it. Therefore, everyone should do this thing if they want to get a similar result, you know? And that sounds pretty straightforward. That sounds pretty uh, self-evident, but it doesn't mean that what that person is doing is the best way to go about getting that result. It doesn't mean that what that person is doing is going to produce that result 
in everyone, you know, like that's not the, the, the principles by which these thing, whatever this thing is, it's not the principles by which that works. It's a protocol that happens to leave you in a position where you get the result. Right. So you don't have a huge amount of understanding of the actual process. You just know, Oh, people do these things and they get this result. Therefore I should do these things and I'll get the same result. And that's not really the case. So how do we then go, well, what is the evidence for and against that thing? And let's start parsing that out and going, okay, well, why does it work for these people? Oh, they have this going on and this going on. Oh, that's why it works. And we can actually start really like figuring out the principles rather than just the, the like, oh, this is, this works for everyone. And to give you a more concrete example in the you know training world, people will say, oh, you should just squat for big legs. You know, just get a stronger squat and your legs will grow. Right. And people that are, you know, relatively well respected in the health and fitness world will say stuff like that. Right. And while it's not necessarily wrong, it's not like it's a protocol, you know, it's not a principle. Right. So people are left thinking, oh, well, I must squat if I want bigger legs. Right. And then you'll see people throughout you know history time especially in the bodybuilding world that'll be like all right well i just don't squat and i get fantastic results my legs are huge you know like why would i squat it's an exercise that just doesn't work for me right and then you obviously have other people that are like no the squat is the king of exercises you have someone like tom platts and it's like you just squat and your legs are going to get absolutely massive right so you as you know an individual looking at that are, are kind of left in a position where you're like well who is right I don't like, how do I figure out what's going on? And the way we go about figuring out what's going on, well, it's less important. That is the scientific method. But what's more important is you start understanding the actual principles. You're like, okay, so how do squats lead to bigger legs? Oh, they involve these muscles. Okay. Are there other exercises that involve these muscles? Right. Okay, cool. These other exercises also do a similar job in terms of bringing these muscles through these different ranges, bringing these joints through these different ranges why is this exercise better than this exercise? Oh, it's actually, it isn't the best exercise. It's just been historically, that's all we had access to, you know, or historically, that's the thing that came to fruition, you know, like, why do we have four wheeled cars, not three wheeled cars? You know, it's like these different things. And there's a few reasons for that, but anyway, we won't get into that. Um, But like these things are just like, oh, this has occurred throughout history. And now that's the, we just do that. We just take it for granted, you know? Like, for example, like, uh, actually, we don't need to go into more examples. I think that's fairly intuitive, right? We just take it for granted that, oh, this is the way the world works because that's what you've always been exposed to. That's what everyone's always done. But that's not always the best way of going about these things. You actually have to understand the underlying principles, and then you can actually go about becoming better at getting results with yourself or getting results with your clients or helping other individuals in the world in general, you know? And the thing about this is you have to understand what evidence is to be able to do this hence we're doing this this episode right like i don't want to like as gary said i don't want this to be like oh this is a an academic critique of evidence-based practice like there's multiple papers you can go to that multiple articles online that you can go and look into that stuff i don't want this to be another one that's just contributing to that i just want this episode to be like okay you understand a little bit more about oh this is what's required for evidence in terms of the health and fitness world how do I actually go about implementing that into my own life? How do I start thinking through the different things that I'm doing and the different things that I'm exposed to and trying to understand whether that's actually evidence-based or it's just 
anecdote based or it's just experience based and experience and anecdote are part of evidence but they're not the full full picture right you need to be able to understand that full picture right and again like i said i don't want this to be about you know oh you have to learn how to read a scientific paper or you know you need to go back and get a degree in whatever like that's not what i want what i want from this episode is you go away and going okay i understand what's required to actually evaluate this claim a little bit more you know so gary what is evidence-based like what does evidence-based mean evidence-informed healthcare evidence-based practice you see all these different terminology thrown around what does it actually mean yeah fundamentally what it means is that you're basically using some sort of evidence to inform your practice okay as suggested but what that actually means is that you consider this in terms of some sort of hierarchy. So for example, there might be cases where you actually have lots of very high quality evidence, lots of research papers that will get to the methodology and that in a minute, but you might have something where there's loads of studies available and you can make a very clear decision because the studies are on populations of interest. Um, So for example, if it's a, a nutrition intervention for someone with high cholesterol, let's say, There might be lots of studies in people with high cholesterol with this particular nutrition intervention of the age, of the sex, of the person that you're trying to apply the intervention to. So in that case, you've got a very clear uh, body of evidence in which you can make decisions. However, the other things along with like research itself that come into the consideration of evidence-based practice would be, you know, experience. Okay. So if you've got a particular amount of expertise, let's say you've been working um, as a surgeon or something for 20 years or a nutritionist for 20 years, and you fit, you experienced over time that one particular intervention works much better than others, that's still valuable. Or you might find that in certain people, this doesn't work in others. It does. That's still valuable as is, you know, the patient's preferences, because in some cases, one, there's a consent concern, particularly in medicine. Um, But two, someone's preferences might influence how well they're able to execute on a particular intervention, or how well they're able to adhere to it, for example, and potentially even the response they get to it, or from it because of the psychological um, effects of preference, for example. So there's, they're kind of known classically as the three stools of evidence-based practice or the three legs of the stool of evidence-based practice rather um, stemming from Sackett's work. But the the thing is in, in Sackett, David Sackett, I think his name is David. Yeah. David Sackett in his initial work uh, relates to evidence-based practice. He never said that these three things were equal. Okay. So it wasn't that there was three things that should be equally weighted in all cases. And this is the way this is sometimes interpreted, which is, a little bit misleading because some people will make the case, for example, that, you know, okay, yeah, there's research to support this intervention, but my experience says that uh, this other thing works much better. And they put the experience above the research to uh, above the control research when in fact, or in, yeah, the experience above the control research when in fact, that's probably not the wisest thing to do in many cases, in some cases it is. In some cases, if you can very clearly say why your instance of using a given intervention is an exception to the research that's there, that's fair enough, that can happen. A classic place where that happens, go ahead. 
Yeah. I was just going to say a classic place where it happens is in training where we might have lots of training interventions on uh, the general population and we derive training principles from that. But if we have an elite athlete who is an exception to the rule, then we might be able to make a valid case as to why our experience or expertise is more valuable in this case than the research that is pre-existing. So whether or not you equally weigh these things up depends on the body of evidence there, who you're working with, and whether or not they would be an exception to that body of evidence. And also, of course, the role in which patient preference is going to play in this particular, this particular intervention. Because there are cases where patient preference might actually exert a very strong impact. For example, if someone really enjoys one thing and hates the other, that's really important, particularly in training. We see this a lot in training where if someone, we might be able to say what's optimal, but if our clients hate doing it and they're not excited to do it, they're not putting effort into it, it's just not going to be as effective as doing something that's maybe a little bit less optimal that they are going to put all their effort into and be really excited to do. So what the, the way that you weigh up these three variables of research experience and client preferences, it actually varies on a case by case basis. And you need to be dynamic in the way that you assess that rather than considering them to be fixed variables. Yeah. And it also applies to your like daily life, the jobs that you do, you know, like you see this all the time in like industry, someone will come out with some sort of like, I don't know, they'll, they'll pay some research firm or something, a paper or whatever to come out and be like, right, this is how we optimize this process. And then the people who've been doing the job for the last 50 years <laughs> or whatever will be like, no, that's just not going to work. Right. That's just, we're not going to be able to do that. And being evidence-based you know, the way a lot of people think of evidence-based, they'd be like, well, obviously the research is the best, right? The research, let's go with the research. But that is actually not being evidence-based. You have to use that experience. You know, these people have been doing this job for the last 50 years or however long, like you need to listen to those concerns. For example, in the research might dictate and say, oh, well, we have to do this, you know, whatever supply assembly line this way. This is going to be the most optimal way. But the people that have been doing it for however long are like, yeah, but when you do it this way, X, Y, and Z happens, you know, it's just, it, it's not optimal um, for whatever reason. And if you just listen to the research and you don't listen to the experience, you might fall like at that hurdle because the research is completely dependent on the variables that you have actually controls for and the different things that you've actually put into the system that you've tried to account for. Like if you built a com computer model and you haven't accounted for, I don't know, overheating of the machines or something, you know, which the experienced technicians, they know, oh, well, if you try to do this, the machines are going to overheat. And you just didn't even think of that as something to, you know, that could even play into the system, then you're not going to know, right? So the research is actually wrong in this case. So you have to use that clinical experience or not in this case, the, the on the job experience to help you dictate, okay, well, that research says this, but the research is actually wrong because of X, Y, and Z. And this is why we do it this way. You know, there are potential ways we could optimize it, but this is not one of those ways that we can optimize this, you know? So it actually becomes really hard to decipher this stuff because it's not like we can always say research is 100% correct, right? So if you put all of your stock and all of your weighting in research, you lose out on the real world stuff. You know, you lose out on the feedback. And also, like Gary said, 
like you can have, oh, this is the best protocol in the world. I'm going to tell you to do it. And you're like, I actually hate this. I'm, I'm not going to do it. You know, you're telling me that these exercises don't work for my body, but I actually just really enjoy these exercises or this nutritional paradigm or this whatever it is. It's like, okay, well, that has to be taken into account, you know? And there's obviously like religious and moral and all those other kind of preferences as well, especially in the, the medical realm that you have to take into account. But we have to take all that stuff into account. We can't just put research on the pedestal and go, this is the, the pinnacle. This is the, the everything because it's not, you know, like we have to be like, this is what the, the ivory tower individuals have told us. What does that actually look like if we try to implement that in the real world? And again, you've seen this throughout history. You know, you've seen like communist regimes, like uh, in China, for example, they were like, oh, well, we have an issue with too much, uh, like uh, birds eating the seeds in the fields, right? So we're just going to kill all the sparrows, kill all the sparrows. Now all of a sudden you fucking locust eating your your crops, you know? So just because you think, oh, if I manage this one variable, this will work. That's, it's not always the case. The real world is often different than what you envisage it to be in this like perfectly controlled setting, this lab setting, and in this theoretical like, oh, this is how it should work. And this is what you see in politics all the time. You know, people will have this theory of like, we should do it like this. And then, you know, you see it in the real world and it's like, it just didn't pan out. And then obviously everyone always says, it's like, oh, well, that's not real. Like in this case, communism, it's like, oh, that's not real communism because, you know, you didn't do it like this. And it's like, yeah, because in the real world, it doesn't work like this, you know? And it's the same with capitalism, not just picking on communism. Like, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, in theory, the market should be self-correcting, the invisible hand of the market, blah, blah, blah. But in practice, you know, people are corrupt. People, you know, come up with laws and different things that, you know, make it so that, you know, different companies are protected and, you know, whatever. So it's not always a perfect translation from research to the real world or theory to the real world. And that makes it really hard for you as an individual to actually be evidence-based, you know, because how do you, like, where do you put your, your stock? Where do you think, like, where do you think is more important? You're like, oh, the research says this, or this theory says this, or do you go, well, in my experience of the world or the experience of people around me, it's been this, you know, or again, you're like, oh, well, my actual preference is this, like how much weighting do you put on all of those as an individual? It's very hard and it depends. Obviously it's topic by topic, you know? Yeah. And there's also another element to this as well, where there's sort of a difference in um, standard evidence-based practice and risk management. And this comes into a a number of really important situations. An easy example of, of where this came to the forefront of the public eye would be at the beginning of the pandemic. So at the beginning of the, (laughs) at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic um, in early 2020, there was a massive amount of uncertainty and because the outcomes of what would happen or what could happen were unknown, it made sense at that point in time to have policies or personal uh, behaviors that may seem like an overreaction. Because what you're doing there is you're actually deciding to manage risk in the absence um, of sufficient evidence. So your decisions would be based on risk management there. The reason I'm bringing this up in this discussion is because this comes into um, our coaching practice and particularly my coaching practice a lot of the time where when when dealing with pain and injury, for example, or injury risk, we never know when someone is going to get injured. We can never predict exactly when someone's pain is going to flare up. So in some cases, 
we have to adopt a kind of risk management philosophy towards uh, training planning. So although maybe we might have evidence in certain populations to say that, oh, you could do way more training than this or um, whatever it happens to be, in this particular population where I'm trying to mitigate someone's pain flaring up again and then being, having a significant setback, I might be a lot more conservative in terms of the amount of volume or the amount intense of intensity that that person is prescribed. So I'm considering the evidence that's available, but I'm also considering risk management. So how aggressive or conservative you are with your prescriptions also considers the risk of those um, prescriptions. And that's obviously very important in medicine. So for example, you might be a lot more conservative uh, with prescribing a drug if that drug has a narrow therapeutic uh, index, which means that the place where it's most effective is very close to the place where it's potentially toxic or harmful. So you have to be a lot more conservative in that place. And you might want a lot more evidence before making decisions. However, if it was a drug or intervention that was, let's say, relatively benign, um, that you know is very difficult to overdose on, you might be a little bit freer in terms of your prescription there. It's very similar to how we, how we deal with training. Um, because if we have uh, someone like someone that has a, a specific injury where there's a lot of evidence to inform the way that we rehab that injury and there's a risk of flaring up if we don't stick to that. Um, for example, it might be fracture healing or something like that where we obviously don't want to refracture the bone. That's a place where we can use evidence to uh, inform our training a little bit more closely than if someone is just, let's say, training while losing body fat or training to build muscle where, yeah, we've got some principles that we can derive from research, but there's very little risk there unless the person is already injured or, you know, they're, we're doing ridiculous amounts of training, but we can be a lot more flexible in terms of what we're doing. So it's not just about the three legs of the stool, so to speak. It's also about considering the potential harms that might come of a given intervention or a non-intervention, because that's a decision too. Um, and then adjusting the way that you use evidence, use experience, make decisions based on that too. Yeah. Again, it, I wish it was easier to just be like, this is you know, the protocol. This is the scientific method. This is how you do this. Here's the checklist. Do, 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 do. See you later. You're done. You can use this as a lens to look at everything. But unfortunately, you can't. Like you're saying there, it could be a case of, again, risk management. That's your, the forefront of your mind. And as a result, you're going to be thinking of like the quality of the evidence and the amount of the evidence much more. For example, like I was just thinking of like an extreme example, like imagine you had to give a, a child a gun for whatever reason. They had to carry the gun. You know, you have to give the child a gun. Like you are going to do so much more in terms of checking that. You're going to be like, oh, is there actually like bullets in the magazine? Is there one in the chamber? You're going to be like, is it on safety? You know, is it completely like a foolproof that there's this child is not going to shoot themselves or injure someone else, right? So you're going to require a lot more evidence. Whereas if you're like, right, I just want you to carry this ball. You're like, yeah, it's relatively low risk. Here's the ball. See you later. You know, you might even just throw it to them. You know, it's not, it's not even like, oh yeah, like there you go. There's just real casual, like, boom, see you later, right? Um, so the requirement for evidence obviously changes with the level of risk right and people are fairly well 
able i hope at least <laughs> uh to be like all right that's intuitive to know obviously if something's more risky where we're going to require more evidence like if someone asked you to jump off a cliff here into this body of water you might not want to be the first person you know you're like oh there could be rocks underneath there you know i don't want to like break my spine my legs die whatever you're like there's a lot more hesitance you know you're like i need a lot more evidence before i do that right humans i think again at least are a lot better able to deal with that stuff, right? But when there's a case of, you know, uh, risk associated with an absence of an intervention, people are a lot, you know, less well able to decipher that stuff. You know, you're like, well, if you don't do this, you know, what are the repercussions of that? You know, for example, and again, not to get like political, you know, because we don't like politics on this uh, podcast, do we, Gary? Um, But not to get political, but like people will be like, all right, well, I do or do not want to get a vaccine. You know, and, you know, you can argue the validity and all whatever else. But if you choose not to get a vaccine and then you get COVID and get you know terribly ill or you spread COVID to someone else that gets terribly ill, it's like humans are a lot less able to understand that risk ahead of time, mm-hmm. you know, and we're a lot less willing to accept that, you know, especially when you don't perceive the risk as being that risky, you know, like, for example, you or myself, you might be like, COVID's not going to be a big deal for either of us. You know, I've had COVID and literally didn't even know I had a little cough, right? That was the extent of it. Whereas I know people who have died from COVID, you know? So it's like the, the risk to reward ratios here between every single thing that we do, it's going to be different on a person by person basis. And it's just really hard to give you this checklist. You know, obviously we're talking about this like health and fitness related stuff. So you're like, oh, well, the risk isn't that high. You know, it's like, ah, it doesn't really matter what exercises I do or what intervention I do or whatever. But the risks are potentially actually very high. Like you could, like myself and you, we do jujitsu, you know? We're like, all right, it's just, a, it's just exercise. Who cares? You know, it's not that high. The two, like I could literally be paralyzed next week, you know? I just fall on my neck in a weird way. You know, I do a lot of inverted and, you know, I could just be like slammed on a 120 kilo guy, you know, that I roll with just fucking puts all his weight down there and boom, snap my neck right and i'm like there's the risk associated with that and i'm just viewing this as exercise so we can't just go oh it doesn't really matter and you see this all the time like you know people get concussions from the sports that they do like life-changing injuries from the sports that they do people get life-changing injuries in the gym you know like it is a relatively lower risk than a lot of other activities but they still it still happens you know like i've seen bodybuilders who've been in the gym for 20 years like get completely life-changing injuries you know snap both their fucking knees up you know (laughs) like so it's like these things happen so you have to be aware and you have to be like well what is the evidence for me actually including this exercise in the program what is the evidence to support like having this exercise or not having this exercise or whatever and is that actually aligned with the results is there a better way is a safer way of whatever like there's so much that goes into this stuff in the background that you really just need to understand how evidence works to actually be able to make good decisions. Now, I don't like catastrophizing all this stuff. I think people should just, you know, increase their resilience rather than increase their fear. So, you know, you can still go out and exercise, but it is something that you need to think about and go, well, what is the evidence for this exercise or the way I'm training here? Is it the best way to train? Is it, you know, one of the better ways to train or is it just what I've always done? Because that's often what dictates people's training decisions or nutrition decisions. It's like, this is the way I've always done it. And that's not necessarily the best way. 
Absolutely. So with that said, what, it, what we'd like to do now is just to move into a discussion of a little bit about what we mean when we say evidence um, and the terminology you're going to come across when you start to talk about research or read about research or hear others talk about research. So there's this concept of the hierarchy of evidence, which varies in its application between different disciplines, because some disciplines are much easier to do certain types of studies compared to others. Um, but overall, what you can consider here are basically at the bottom of the so-called evidence hierarchy would be, for example, things such as an opinion by an expert. Okay. So let's say if there's no evidence available and someone just shares their opinion, but they are actually an expert in that area, that would be the the bottom of the evidence hierarchy similarly just on that as well like everyone always puts that as the bottom but realistically there is more like the actual ground itself oh, yeah. is the actual like the world around you the intuitive world around yeah. you. you know it's like oh like you know i want to train my legs i don't have no idea how to train my legs i'm just going to go into the gym and i'm going to do these different exercises that i've seen i don't know what they do oh, I feel this working my legs. You know, it's like you, some of this stuff is intuitive, right? And it's like, you don't ever need to have got an expert's opinion, a textbook or anything like that. Like some of the world is just intuitive. You know, you're like, I just do what other people have done and they have no evidence for doing it. <laughs> you know, it's like, we just, we just do this stuff, you know? So the actual ground that the pyramid of evidence or the hierarchy of evidence is based on is just the baseline world intuition, you know? Yeah. And Facebook, etc. you know, you could put all of those course, things course, into the <laughs> random blogs. Um, and then also like, you know, other things that you might consider down there would be, for example, textbooks, maybe it might be a physiology textbook that you read. That's just giving you the basics of how physiology works. And if you were to go and make a, a training decision based just on that, it, it mightn't be so useful because it's not like, although some textbooks like are, more evidence-based and that they're clearly making recommendations based on evidence, um, a lot of the time that might necessarily be the case. So you put all those things down there at the bottom. And as you rise up, effectively what you're dealing with is more and more controlled observations. Because what you consider is like, if I'm training myself and I get a certain result, that's an anecdote. It's still an observation of some sort because there has been an outcome and I do know what I did. It's just not controlled. So it's not compared against anything else. There's not more people involved for me to be able to compare against to see, does this work for other people? Or was this just a once off or something random? Could it have been achieved with another program, et cetera? So it's very uncontrolled. As you move up, you do have those individual case reports. So case reports or case series where basically you will have published cases. This is most often in the case of like rare diseases or um, diseases where there might not be treatments yet, for example. So this would be a case, let's say, where I, I could publish a case report on the use of high volume uh, resistance training in uh, one of my clients with, I don't know, cerebral palsy, let's say. Okay. Just something that's kind of niche that there mightn't be much, much research on. You have those case reports there. Again, it's just reporting on wh what the outcome was in response to the intervention. It's written up a bit more formally um, and there's more detail involved than just your sole observation or reflection, but still there's not really much there. You might use that information if there was no other 
uh, evidence available, but it's not going to form a very strong um, stance as such. Or like you'd see, you know, if you say you reported this and then all of a sudden you find there's two, three, four, five other case reports of similar things, similar population, you might start thinking, okay, there's something, something going on here. You know, again, that N equals or that the amount of the number of exposures to that piece of evidence, you know, it's like, okay, so there's, there's more, there's more here, you know, if it's just one and a million billion, you know, it's like, well, it doesn't really matter. Like, of course it matters for that individual, but on the grand scheme of things, we're going to be like, okay, cool. It doesn't really inform us all that much apart from going, okay, this is something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. And then at the next level, what you've got are your cohort studies, cross-sectional studies, case control studies all of these studies study types are effectively where you've got some sort of you've got an intervention in like if we take a cohort study first right you're observing a cohort over time that had a certain uh, exposure so for example you might have uh, 100 people who let's say they're all doing a ketogenic diet they're all on ketogenic diet and you then follow them over time that will be a prospective cohort study because they were enrolled at the start. They were doing this particular intervention and you follow them for a year. And at the end, you might say, right, let's check their cholesterol. Let's check their blood pressure. Let's check their body weight, et cetera. So it's a, it's a cohort study that they had the exposure. They're not being compared to anyone. You're just seeing what happened over time. So you're seeing what happened in that group. You're not comparing like, uh, for example, that, that same group at one point in time um, or with, on a keto diet and another time on a vegan diet, or you're not having them, you know, 50% of the group on the vegan diet, 50% on a keto diet. It's not a, a direct comparison. Um, although cohort study can involve comparisons in some cases, in this case, all we're doing is we're following them over time, kind of seeing what happens. Okay. Similarly, a cross-sectional study, what you might do is you might at a given point in time, let's say those people on the ketogenic diet, you sample them at one point in time rather than following them over time and you assess, you assess your uh, variables of interest. So again, you're seeing what features do these people on a ketogenic diet exhibit, okay? But you don't necessarily know, is this because they're on the ketogenic diet? Is it because they exercise? Is it because they had a different diet previously, et cetera? So those types of studies are where you, you can still have lots of people involved, but you don't necessarily have the granularity of it being randomized and there being like really uh, controlled comparisons. However, as you move up then to controlled trials, particularly randomized controlled trials, this is where what will happen is, let's say I'm the researcher. What I'll do is I'll pick specific criteria for including people in my study. Okay, so let's say I'm interested in 25 to 35-year-old males who've been going to the gym for three years are non-obese, have no uh, medical conditions, and I want to enroll them in a study assessing the effect, the uh, efficacy or effectiveness of a ketogenic diet for muscle building, right? Very specific. Okay. We're very specific with who we're including, who we're not including. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get my, let's say hundred people that uh, get in, enrolled in the study. And what we'll do then is randomize them. Okay. So they'll be randomized to two different groups. For example, one would be the keto diet. One would be um, a standard diet or a vegan diet or something else. Um, they'd be the, controls. you might also have like, you know, a few different yeah. groups, uh, depending on the size, it might be even four. Like, let's just say, you know, you've got like 
one of the variables you're like oh i want to manage this one it's protein intake so it's a ketogenic diet with a low protein intake so it's actually more ketogenic or a protein or a ketogenic diet with a higher protein intake that we'd be like this is more akin to like bodybuilding levels of protein and then you might be like then we want to have the same two except a carbohydrate style diet you know it's like a low protein carbohydrate style diet a high protein carbohydrate style diet and then you might have a control that's just like the standard Western diet or whatever, you know, you might have multiple controls as well. You know, like, Oh, I actually want to control as well. A vegan diet, just, you know, your standard vegan diet, you know, so it depends on the actual study itself. Yes. And, and the, the good thing about that is that because it's randomized and because we've had very specific inclusion or exclusion criteria, provided the characteristics are roughly matched between the two groups, we get a bit more of an idea of whether or not it was the intervention or whether it was just, randomness or chance so that's what we're trying to do we're trying to reduce that by randomizing them into different groups and then having roughly similar baseline characteristics other than the dietary change that we're interested in now it's still very difficult to do this properly with nutrition interventions because ideally and this is what would be done in in uh, pharmaceutical interventions you'd have a double blinded where the person themselves they don't know if they're taking the drug or the placebo, for example. And also the person assessing the outcome, um, for example, uh, measuring blood pressure at the end or with a ketogenic diet and muscle building, it might be measuring muscle circumference at the end. The person assessing doesn't know what exposure was given. So they don't know whether they were, the person took the drug or the person took the placebo. With nutrition interventions, it can be very difficult to do that. There's certain ways of doing it. But in something as broad as a keto diet versus a standard diet, the individual consuming the diet, you can't blind them to it. They can't be blinded. They know what they're eating. Okay. There are certain situations where that's, um, that problem is solved. For example, if you wanted to compare the effect of a polyunsaturated fat versus saturated fat intervention, you might give uh, the people uh, their meat all their meals and the additives to different meals might be either saturated fat or polyunsaturated fat and they might be able to to tell so that's one way that, that it can be blinded but in a lot of cases nutrition interventions can't really be double blinded um additionally the so the outcome assessor could still be blinded in that it might be that whoever's assessing muscle circumference at the end, they don't know what diet that person was on. Um, so that's still possible. And ultimately what you're trying to do with these control studies is just minimize the risk of bias. Okay. You're minimizing the risk of bias that's introduced at the start or at any other point, point in the study. So by you initially want to take a sample that is appropriate and representative of your um, population of interest um, or of the general population in some cases, so, for example, if I was doing a, a study um, on the ketogenic diet, right, and my way of sampling people from my study was to go through keto groups on Facebook to recruit participants, I've introduced a sampling bias there because these are individuals who are already interested in the ketogenic diet. They probably have their own individual bias towards the ketogenic diet. Similarly, it might be the opposite situation where you recruit people from uh, vegan groups and you put them on a ketogenic diet. And very clearly, there's going to be the opposite bias where they're going to be biased against it um, and those types of things. So there's many different ways bias can be introduced during studies and having the participants blinded and the outcome assessor blinded is a really good way to mitigate that. 
as well as the randomization process um, when someone is being uh, allocated to a given group. So there's lots of other details there in terms of how people run studies, how people reduce bias, but I'm sure you can see there that that's a, lot, a far more objective way of assessing uh, the outcomes at the end because you know or you hope that the only variable or the primary variable that changed was the uh, the uh, intervention versus the placebo or control. Okay, so that's your randomized control trials. And then beyond that, you're basically looking at summations of evidence. So for example, you might have a meta-analysis of randomized control trials where effectively a researcher will look at all the randomized control trials like those that we just discussed, and there might be 10 of them, let's say, and they'll pool all the results together and they'll run a statistical analysis to assess, right, what's the average effect, okay? That's effectively what you're looking at. There's lots of different statistical nuances as to how you can run that and, and sub-analysis and stuff like that. But for the most part, the purpose here of a meta-analysis of randomized control trials is to look at the, the average effect. So um, what you might see in this sometimes is that some results might be actually conflicting, but it might be because maybe the population was different, maybe the dose of the drug or something was different, or the background environment was different. This happens a lot. And by pooling all these studies together, you can get a, a, a more objective idea as to whether or not this intervention works across different populations or even within a given population. So that's a meta-analysis. And then you've got kind of other types of review papers where maybe we'll, someone will write a systematic review where they do a review without the statistical analysis component or a, another type of review, like a, a narrative review where it's not necessarily systematic, but they're looking at all the evidence that's uh, been collated in a, in a related to a particular research question. Or there might be, a, in some cases, a, a kind of a synthesis or synopsis of the evidence that's out there um, by experts. It might be like a, an expert consensus based on the evidence that's there, plus clinical experience, plus maybe lower quality evidence, and you get a kind of a guideline out of that. Uh, but that, that can vary in terms of its quality as well. So it's not necessarily always at the top, but that gives you an idea of, of the, the spectrum of evidence that we'd be looking at. Yeah. And just to kind of quickly like recap through that at the base here, you've got this kind of anecdotal evidence, you know, maybe from well-respected individuals, well-learned individuals, you obviously have as well making up that kind of base, like anecdotal uh, evidence from people that aren't well-respected <laughs> and aren't like well-learned. Um, and then you've got just you know, general people's opinions about different things. You're like, oh, this is the way we do it, right? That's kind of the base, right? But it's not the highest quality. So if you're basing all your stuff on anecdotal evidence, either your own anecdote or other people's anecdote, like there are higher quality pieces of evidence out there right so what's the next you know what's the next level we got maybe like we'll call it like animal and cell studies right because mm -hmm. someone will have an idea about a thing they're like this is what happens blah 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 obviously it depends on the actual intervention like if we're talking about a medical intervention there might be like oh here's a placebo pill versus a you know the actual drug or whatever before we even get to that, we need to know, okay, well, how do cells, isolated cells, maybe you're looking at a liver drug, you're like, well, how does the liver respond if we just sprinkle some of this drug on it? You know, it's like, oh, it works like this. And they might be just, oh, it seems to work in liver cells. And you see a lot of that kind of stuff where it's like, it seems to work. And then you've got all the way to like refined, like mechanistic. It's like, this is exactly how it works in this cell, you know? And that's 
surprisingly sparse for some drugs because while we can look at it in an individual cell, that's not necessarily the way it works in the whole body. And mm. obviously when we look at mechanisms in an isolated cell or even tissue, that's not how it works when it's integrated in the whole body. You know, like if you isolated a liver cell versus a muscle cell versus like a, a red blood cell, and we're talking about something like beta oxidation, you know, pathways involved that involve like mitochondria or whatever, you know, you're like, okay, cool red blood cell doesn't have a mitochondria, you know? So it's like, you're always going to have a difference here. So the mechanistic stuff changes, you know, depending on where it's in, in the body. And then obviously when we actually integrate the whole body, it completely changes, you know? So then what would happen is you'd have these cell studies and then they'd go on to like animal studies, you know, uh, a mouse, a rat or whatever. And unfortunately, this is the stuff that a lot of people in the supposedly evidence-based world they rely a lot on they're like oh it's animal studies or cell studies and they rarely transfer over perfectly to the real world you know <laughs> to actual humans especially when it's a an animal that is completely different than humans and that has been bred for scientific processes like these mm -hmm. mice in these studies you know and um, like you'd be better off just getting a mouse population that you got from the wild however that introduces a whole load of other variables that these people are or these mice are not genetically basically identical clones of each other right so you're like oh there's a lot more variables to consider then right which is in science you want to you know want to manage the variables right and um, but in the real world we can't manage all the variables right so then we got okay we've got all that stuff unfortunately again that's where a lot of people hang their hat they'll be like oh you should be on a ketogenic diet or you should be on this diet because in this cell study or this animal study it produced this like you see this a lot of the time with um obesity different things you know where they're like oh well people with obesity they have uh different gut microbiomes and it's all done in like mice and rats and everything else and it's like all those animals practice coprophagy they literally eat shit that's how they get their microbiome that's how they interact with the world humans don't do that or at least not in the western world i presume not in the, the rest of the world as well but in the cultures that i know of we don't really eat shit um so how is that going to translate to what humans actually do you know so after that we've got these animal cell studies after that we've got these case reports or case series you know you've got okay a doctor or a scientist would be like these things appear to be going on here's a report on it they might have a hypothesis being like this is why i think it's happening but they might just be like here i have no idea it seems to be working in this individual scientific community have at it tear this paper apart tear this report apart I don't care, but I'm reporting on what I'm seeing in the real world. And this happens a lot more in medicine where, you know, you've got like um, different diseases will come to the fore, you know, you, like COVID-19, for example, people are like, oh, I don't know what to do with it. You might get a lot of case reports being like, these seem to be the best practices. Don't do this, do this. You know, it's, it's an evolving process based on these initial case reports. People are like, oh, well, I intubated this person and I didn't intubate this person and this led to a better outcome. You know, here you go. Or, I don't know which is better here's a case report, or I'm seeing this disease process, here you go, you know, surgery happens a lot as well, where it's like, I'm performing this surgery that, you know, has never been done before, or, you know, there's only one way of doing it, and I'm going to do it this different way, and, oh, it seems to actually have a better outcome, you know, um, like, you see this all the time with, like, very specific, like, niche surgeries, um, so you have these case reports, case series, then you've got case control studies, 
similar enough again we went through those you got these cohort studies and again it's just a bigger cohort a bigger group of people and then we've got these kind of randomized control trials so we're randomizing the well ideally the selection well not completely you're not completely randomizing the selection you're selecting a population of interest and then you're randomizing them to the actual group you're like this is a treatment arm and this is the non-treatment arm or whatever it is you know and then you're going okay we've got this randomized control trial and we're like this is this is how we're going to run it, right? And then you've got on top of that, you've got these systematic reviews. So people might go, oh, here's a randomized control trial. Let's actually, or here's a few of them. Let's actually see what they all say. Here's a systematic review of this seems to be the processes by which this works. This seems to be, you know, what works, what doesn't work. See you later. And then you have like meta-analysis of like, okay, here's 20 systematic reviews we have on this topic or, you know, controlled trials or whatever it is, whatever the meta-analysis is, you know, analyzing. Let's look at all that data. Let's actually go, this is, this is the best case scenario. This is what works and what doesn't work. You know, they're like, these are, and when people do this, it works 20% of the time. When people do this, it works 70% of the time. So, you know, do the 70%, you know? Um, so there's your evidence, your kind of walkthrough of what is evidence. Now, obviously, again, you have to start looking at that in terms of what you do as an individual, because you're not necessarily reading meta-analysis. You're not really reading like case reports. You're not really, for the vast majority of people, at least, you don't have the abilities to read that stuff or even the access. That's a huge one as well. Like sometimes like obviously you have access through your college and stuff, but a lot of people don't have access. Now there's some fantastic websites out there that give you stuff for free. Um, excuse me, um, but even still, like I'll come across papers that I don't have access to and I have to ask you for, I'm like, here, can you get this through your university or your institution or whatever, you know? Um, so that's one thing. So if you're like, oh, what's the best evidence for this question that I have or how do I decipher it? And you can't even get access to the information. Like that's a huge barrier, right? But then even if you do get access, you might not be able to interpret that information yourself. You might not have the, the rest of the expertise to actually interpret that stuff yourself, you know? And this is why for the vast majority of people, and we're going to talk about this in the next episode, but for the vast majority of people, you're going to be left in a situation where you kind of have to defer to experts. And that leads to a very, unfortunately, shady process where these experts can often be wrong. They have their own biases. They have, you know, different things that they're like, oh, well, I want to push this because it sells more of my own product or whatever it is. And you believe them because you're like, this person is an expert. They should be almost infallible, you know? And also, especially in the current political climate, people just don't want to either admit that they're wrong, or if people do admit that they're wrong, they're, oh, you're wrong, I'm not following you anymore, see you later. Like, you can't, you can't, you can't win either way, you know? You're either a person that's like, oh, I'm never wrong, I'm always right, you know, a, a guru, effectively, you know, like, this is, I'm 100% right, 100% of the time, um, or, you admit that you're wrong. You're like, oh, I didn't have the best evidence here. And now I do. This is my updated opinion. People are like, oh, you, why did you say that? You used to say this, blah, blah, blah. You know, you lose your tribe effectively, you know? So there's a huge amount of issue in terms of how we actually use the evidence in the real world. And unfortunately, we don't have a simple solution for you. We will talk about it a little bit more in the next episode, but there's no easy way to actually go through this stuff, you know? And um, now, we just want to quickly just go through, unless you've got anything to say on that guy. No, that's good. We're just going to quickly go through just some common fallacies. I'm not going to go into these in depth because they're actually just, first of all, they're not all the fallacies that we could go through in terms of interpreting evidence. But also I just wanted to give you a few select ones because I think this is good 
to use as a bit of a tool to kind of go, okay, well, I have this evidence. Is it actually good, right? So we have this first one here, which is just garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you're doing a meta-analysis, which is at the top of the, the hierarchy of evidence, right? And your selection criteria for, you know, whatever papers, if that's not fantastic, if that selection criteria is not perfect, like you're going to be putting garbage into that system, right? And if you're doing a meta-analysis and we'll presume that involves a lot of, um, you know, statistics, you know, you're like going through it being like, well, what are, what's the, let's try to decipher this stuff out. Let's put it into numbers, right? If you've got shit numbers coming in, you know, they're incorrect. The output of that is going to be crap as well, right? So garbage in, garbage out, right? And that's obviously very easy to see in terms of the meta-analysis because you're like, well, obviously, if I'm trying to do like percentages and crunch these numbers and the thing coming in is pretty crap, obviously the output is going to be pretty crap. But it's the same in terms of the information itself. Like if the information is poor, sorry, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, so if the information is poor because it's actually just not good information, it's just not a well-designed study, it's not a, you know, it's not a, in a population of interest, it's not... You know, if you're doing a cell culture or something, it's just not controlled well, which is actually really hard to see. Like, I know so many scientists from, like, my time uh, working in science, um, because I'm a scientist, you know that, Gary. Um, like, I've seen so many people that have, like, just such poor um, lab practices, like the actual practices of the lab, like, so bad. And they are put on a pedestal when their actual scientific information comes out, you know? And you're like, this is, there's a disconnect here that no one can actually see because they're not even in the lab with this person, you know? So it, sometimes the actual garbage in is in a way that you can't even see it. And you need another scientist to really critique that paper or, you know, the methodology. And this is why in science, it's very important to have like repeatable and reproducible results, right? So if you do a science experiment and you're the only one that can do that science experiment because your processes are just incorrect or they're wrong, or you're just getting a lot of whatever noise in the system that's disrupting the actual results you get. And no one else can reproduce the same experiment or the same results that you did. Like that's not scientific evidence anymore. You know, even though you thought it was, oh, it's because of this. Actually, it's not because that wasn't science. There's some other variable you're not like managing. And this happens a lot, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, garbage in, garbage out fairly intuitive to understand, you know, you have to have good information coming into the system, whether it's the scientific experiments itself, whether it's the actual meta-analysis that you're looking at, whatever, right? And again, unfortunately, if you're not like scientifically literate, you don't have the ability to interpret studies or whatever, this is just very hard to actually like decipher. So when someone gives you a study and they go, oh, but look at this study because of, you know, your, your whatever you're talking about a, a topic, oh, is the ketogenic diet good for this? Or should I avoid saturated fat for heart disease or whatever? And someone produces like a source. They're like, oh, here's my, uh, here's my source for this information. Like it's, it's kind of irrelevant because that could be crap, you know? And just because they've produced a source in a uh, medical journal and it's like, oh, it looks real professional or whatever, it still could be crap. You know, it could be just poor information. It's just garbage. So the garbage that they're consuming is leading to them producing garbage out the back end and giving you information. So very hard to decipher as an individual, right? Do you have anything to say on that, young Gary? I don't think so. I suppose one thing I suppose that is interesting here is I think to give maybe a concrete example that people will be 
very aware of because one example of this right is related to salt okay salt and health is a great example because what you'll 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 hear a lot of controversy surrounding salt and you'll see conflicting um research if you look at different meta-analyses but you know as patty said it's garbage in garbage out so when you put a meta-analysis at the top of the hierarchy of evidence the assumption is that everything is is done really well and your inclusion criteria are appropriate etc and part of this depends on actually understanding some of that uh, baseline physiology and the things that you're using to assess your outcomes so it's not as simple as just running a random study putting everything in and see what seeing what happens an example of this would be in salt research related to salt and health one of the things that is used to um, assess uh, salt salt intake would be urinary sodium excretion okay so basically what you do is you take a urine sample and you assess the amount of sodium that is within uh, the urine and you can do this as a single point measurement or a 24-hour collection and a 24-hour urinary, urinary excretion collection is far far more useful than a single point collection and if you put all uh, all these things together like single point uh, plus the 24-hour urinary excretion um, assessments you get very messy results when you do just the 24-hour urinary excretion you see the stat the standard relationship that we uh, expect which is that salt leads to increases in blood pressure in cardiovascular events stroke etc so that excess salt in the diet probably isn't so great to consume but when you mix up the results you're putting just garbage into your meta-analysis or maybe you just use those single point sodium excretion assessments it's it's you just don't get the same you don't get the same outcomes you might see um this uh, so-called a J-shaped relationship that people talk about, or you see maybe a, a null result where nothing really changes, but it's primarily the result of what you're actually putting into the assessment. There's a lot of other variables that go into SALT research, um, such as, for example, is the person already taking a drug that increases or decreases sodium excretion, et cetera. So you have to know exactly how to run the assessment, how to select patients, how to select criteria, et cetera rather than just saying, okay, it's a meta-analysis, therefore it's a, it's perfect. You know, that, that's not the way it works. Yeah. hundred percent. So garbage in garbage out, keep that in mind. <laughs> um, but also we have this issue of like not actually asking the right questions or what often, well, it doesn't often happen, but what can happen is you ask the questions after the results come in, right? Yeah. Like hypothesizing after results are known, that's what it's called in the, you know, science, it's called harking. And so you just get a load of results and then you come up with a hypothesis after that, which is what people do in the real world. But like, you know, you'll be like, all right, I'll try this out. I'll see how it goes. Oh, I got this result. Cool. Why, why do I think that worked? Here's my hypothesis why why that works right like it's a, it's an intuitive human thing but it's not the way science should be done because if you just do that you don't like if you don't know what you're looking for or you're not hypothesizing first there is no way to control the variables that go into that so you could be like oh i'll just do this um or i'll hypothesize after the results are known but because you didn't control for one of these other variables all of a sudden you're like oh, there's clearly a relationship here when in reality, it's because this other variable that you didn't even look at that was influencing the result, you know? So hypothesizing after results are known, it's a pretty poor practice. It does happen sometimes. There are a lot of ways that science tries to get around that in terms of they'll do stuff like you have to pre-register your trial and, you know, you have to do a lot of stuff 
already. This is also kind of one of those things that some of the practices that happen in science border on this kind of harking, you know, like people will go back and analyze like these huge like biobanks, you know, and they'll be like, oh, like this is a huge like the nurse's health study, they're like, we have a load of blood results or a load of like information and a load of different whatever, depending on the study about these, these cohorts. And then people will go back and be like, I'm just going to perform all this kind of like statistical wankery on this stuff and go, oh, look, there's clearly a relationship here. You know, uh, my hypothesis is this, you know, and it's like sometimes that's well accepted in the, med- or the medical and the scientific community. Um, but it is kind of just harking. It's kind of just, statistical wankery and just going like oh yeah i'll just fiddle around with these things and if something becomes apparent i'll just you know i'll be like yeah that's that's you know this is cool i have a hypothesis from this result that i got you know do you have anything to say on that gary and um, because it is a little bit more concerning with like a uh, medical related stuff rather than necessarily nutritional or training stuff yeah i mean it's it's very easy to do because like what can often happen is um you see it a lot in research where the primary endpoint that was initially um, of interest mightn't have, you know, had desired result. So they'll find something else that changed. And then you're like, okay, well, this is still a useful finding. So we're going to get it published. And the problem is that with this is, is actually the incentive structure, because effectively there's an incentive structure in scientific publishing um, to only publish positive results. Okay. So if there are negative findings, for example, we run one of these studies and the basically it doesn't prove our hypothesis and the intervention didn't work. We know that the, a lot more of those studies don't get published. So therefore you have a false, um, a false representation of truth to some degree based on what is published and what is not published. So there's an incentive structure in place for, researchers to publish something that actually is a positive finding or that adds something new um, that they can you know present it and be proud of so an example of this would be let's say we run a uh, we do we do a drug trial okay so we we provide a cancer drug and what we're trying to do is see if this prolongs the 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 person's life or leads to a reduction in tumor size by 20 percent or whatever the the outcome of interest is and you ideally you specify that outcome in advance so it might be um uh, 30 uh, let's say 24 month uh, increase in lifespan is what we're interested in that's that's kind of our our goal or it might be that a 20 percent reduction in tumor volume is what we consider to be clinically significant but basically you don't end up having those uh, results as expected so you're like oh right this didn't work, but we still need to publish it and get something positive out of it. So they might say, oh, this drug led to a you know 20% decrease in TGF tumor growth factor or TNF alpha or some random blood marker. Well, not necessarily random, but it might be related to the disease process. And that's kind of put forward as the primary thing now. So the, the study might be published saying uh, this drug leads to a 20% reduction in TNF alpha which is related to cancer, um, very promising. When in fact, we know that based on the primary endpoints, there was actually no difference in uh, survivability or tumor size. It was just this change in the tumor marker. So effectively what you're doing there is you're emphasizing something that wasn't necessarily the primary uh, outcome of interest. And this is something we talk about a lot when it comes to 
considering biomarkers versus real world outcomes um, where people will get really caught up on blood results and markers because it feels like it's really scientific. Whereas if it doesn't actually change the outcome in the real world, it's not really of interest because like the underlying like physiology and biochemistry is really complex and really dynamic. So although you might have had a change in a particular variable that you might think is important, there's lots of other things that you just didn't measure. So if you're going to take that as being significant, there could have been the same changes in other things that are actually detrimental. And all you know, or all you can rely on is what actually happened in terms of the outcome of interest. Did this increase survival? Did this reduce tumor size? Did this reduce the number of cardiovascular events? If that didn't happen, then ultimately it doesn't matter to the end user of the drug or the intervention if their TNF alpha is lower because it doesn't matter. It's not what we care we care about. So that's that's I think something that fits in there. Yeah, and like this is happens all the time in the health and fitness world as well. Like you'll see people go like, oh, the reason we do these exercises is because it gives you this huge hormonal spike, a growth yeah. hormone spike or a testosterone spike or whatever. And it's like that doesn't mean that it leads to increased muscle mass or whatever, you know, whatever the actual outcome we care about, like strength, muscle, fitness, whatever, just because we're like, Oh, there's a hormonal thing that happened here in response to this, those hormones like testosterone or growth hormone seem to be associated with muscle building. Therefore that is what we should do. That's the protocol. Whereas the protocol itself might not actually lead to an increase in muscle mass over time, you know, or it might not lead to, such improvements in fat loss or whatever versus these other things you know so it's very easy to do when you just get really caught up in the like mechanistic stuff and you're like this is this is this is the thing that we actually care about when in reality you care about the outcome you care about what's actually supposed to be influencing this stuff and again you see this all the time in multiple ways in the health and fitness world and people get really caught up on the mechanistic stuff and lose the forest for the trees and don't go, well, what's the actual outcome that we care about? It's, you know, health, whatever that means in terms of the specific health markers we're looking at or the health outcomes or whatever, or muscle mass, strength, or whatever it is. It's like, well, we actually care about that stuff. And you're just measuring this random variable just because you can measure it, you know, like it doesn't mean anything. It means stuff in context and the cacophony of all these other things that go on. But when you're just measuring this one thing because you can measure it, it's not telling us the whole story, you know? Um, there are some other fallacies that occur. Like we talked about one earlier on, just putting excessive weight or, you know, being like, this is more important in anecdote. You know, like, oh, this is anecdotal. You know, uh, my clients do this and they seem to get great results. And you go, oh, well, I want the same results as those clients. So I'm going to do that. You know, it happens all the time. Very hard to really decipher what's going on because oftentimes, some people will just have better practices, better protocols than other people. Um, but oftentimes, which is the next uh, common fallacy, it's just because those individuals were able to survive this person's protocols, you know, mm-hmm. um, because there's another bias that comes into interpreting ev- evidence, which is this survivorship bias, right? And um, like, if you see a study and it's like, right, oh, it leads to a 100% increase in muscle mass and this other control intervention or this normal intervention you're like jesus christ that seems like that's fantastic let's let's go with this right first of all there's another thing that crops in there people often talk about like relative versus absolute um, percentage increases or decreases and that is so misleading you know like you're like oh it's a hundred percent increase 
um, or let's 200% uh, more growth than this other thing. And if the other thing was like one gram of growth and you got 200 or you got two grams of growth, who the fuck cares? Like it's, it's, yeah, it's a 200%, you know, or a hundred percent increase, but it's, it's irrelevant, you know, because it's still fuck all. Right. Um, and people do this all the time, but anyway, going back to survivorship bias. So when we're talking about survivorship bias, what we mean is people basically are just able to survive the protocol, the treatment, the whatever. Right. And then if you just use their data, the people that actually completed the study or the intervention, you know, you see this all the time in the Olympics where it's like, Oh, you were able to survive the Olympic training. Therefore you must be the best. When in reality, it's like, mm, that's, if you had gone under a different system or a different protocol, you might've been able to actually be better. You just weren't able to survive the amount of volume or the intensity of the workouts or the, whatever it is, you just weren't able to survive that. So you dropped out all of that protocol, that training program or the scientific study. You're just like, all right, I'm dropping out of this. I can't do this. And so when you're looking at science, you need to be like, well, okay, we can look at the outcome, but we also actually need to look at the, the methods effectively. But in that, we also need to look at, well, how did it go across? Let's say it's done over 12 weeks. Like if this supposedly fantastic treatment arm or protocol or whatever led to fantastic results, um, we need to look at like, how did it go week to week? And then you start seeing like, oh, well, half the people dropped out every single week. You know, it was just too intense or too much volume or too much workload. And you might be like, oh, well, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be the one that is able to do this that doesn't mean that that's something that should be done across the board, you know? Um, and it doesn't mean that it would even be better. Like there might be ways about not having people drop out and still getting similar results, you know? So survivorship bias is a huge thing in science across the board, but especially in this health and fitness world where people will be like, oh yeah, I survived the, the protocol and therefore the protocol is fantastic for me. But in reality, for the vast majority of people, it would have just crushed them. It just would have been too much or too much intensity or too much volume or it interfered with their life too much or whatever, you know? Um, so do you mind to say on the survivorship bias, Gary? Yeah, I, I just want, it's related. I just want to circle back to the point of um, putting excessive weight and anecdote because I think you can actually make this quite concrete because it sort of seems like the, the excessive weight and anecdote might be like a personal flaw that you consider just anecdote yourself but this is actually something that relates to something that i refer to myself anyway as positive and negative emotional framing and this occurs a lot in media huge and not just in like uh, mainstream media but also in in social media and i'm going to give you a couple of examples that make this a bit concrete and obviously they're somewhat emotionally charged but you can see how people will be willing to justify uh, anecdote in different situations so for example if you look at the the ukraine war situation at the moment right um if you were to consume uh russian uh media versus uh media let's say here in the west that would be generally be more in favor of ukraine you're going to get massively different framing of issues and in many cases the framing is is considered to be something that is negative so maybe we only show the negative side of things but Along with this, there's positive emotional framing where if you look at a lot of the photos that have been shared of the Ukrainian President Zelensky over the last few days, photos and videos, actually, a lot of the photos that have been shared by mainstream media outlets, by lots of people who are posting them on social media and all that sort of thing, 
they're actually photos of him like in military gear and that type of thing and uh, dining with other troops a lot of the photos are actually not from this war at all like they're from previous when he was doing inspections on troops and things like that some from last year some from earlier this year and the the justification there obviously is that oh well like that's okay that's not a problem because we're trying to support Ukraine. And I think the vast majority of us would be in agreement that that's probably a positive thing would be to support the Ukrainian people. Um, however, the problem when we start to do things like that is that we introduce a double standard where we're, we're actively misleading for our own cause. And that's a, it's, it's a bit of a slippery slope. You saw this with COVID as well, where during the pandemic, if you watch RT news or any mainstream news channel, you would have the stories of people who had horrible cases of COVID, okay, and people suffering with COVID. And what they're doing there is, is introducing an emotional frame to make it uh, appear to be serious, okay? And, and again, it's for the sake of the good because the idea is people will take it more seriously if they have an emotional anecdote to which they can attach um, this situation. So this occurs all of the time where we create... We have an anecdote of sorts. We might inflate it to some degree in our own minds or when trying to deliver that information to others. And then this modifies our perception um, of the risk of a given situation. For example, with COVID, depending on the information that you consumed, you might have underweighed or overweighed the risk. Because obviously the other situation is if you were stuck in maybe an anti-COVID bubble, um, or and maybe an, uh, one that's very skeptical of the vaccine, you're going to have emotional uh, weigh, weighing or emotional amplification of stories where people had vaccine injuries, for example. So this is the way that this kind of works in the broader media scale and then how it relates to our own psychology. So we weigh up those anecdotes and um, particularly, uh, or we amplify them to a greater extent when we attach those emotions to them. And the problem is it can be very difficult to detach yourself uh, from those types of anecdotes when they have that emotional uh, content associated with them. COVID was probably the best example of that, to be honest. Um, but it just gives you an, an understanding of how, the, how this works. And you can question yourself there in terms of what sort of things do I appraise on a bit more of an emotional level and how might that inhibit my ability to assess um, the objectivity of the situation. A great example of that actually just because I see the Catholic Church book behind me, is the um, role of, of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, because that's an incredibly emotionally uh, charged issue, and for good reason, because it's atrocious. But if you were to um, consider the rate at which uh, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church has occurred, based on maybe the information you've heard, or the uh, the media framing in some cases, you would probably assume that it's much, much higher rate than it actually is. When in fact, the, the absolute percentage is actually quite low and in many cases lower than the average you'd expect for um, school teachers in general in public schools, which is kind of scary. But again, I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying that um, your emotional uh, attachment to something can absolutely modify your your understanding or your perception of, of how serious an issue something is. Mm, and also, like, you know, something scarier. You know, people have put way more stock in, you know, oh, let's think about terrorism versus... Yes, you know, like, example. Heart disease, you know, or something yeah. like that. You know, it's like, 
like one of these is way more of a risk, but obviously one of these is way more scary. You know, <laughs> like you're like, oh, this other one's going to kill me over 40, 50 years. This one could kill me right here and then, you know, anywhere could strike, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, look, we won't belabor the point. I think people get it. Um, there's also a healthy user bias. This is another one that happens all the time. Like you'll have a study done and it'll be like, oh, this, this, uh, way of living this eating strategy whatever is so much better than this other one and in reality it's like okay well that's because for years we've had public messaging saying that this strategy is better so if people don't do this strategy they're probably not listening to public messaging public health messaging about all these other things you know classic cases like red meat um, and take saturated fat you know or different uh processed meats like if you're eating all these different things that the media has been telling you for years to avoid you're probably doing all these other things that, you know, aren't as healthy. You know, you're probably, <clears throat> you know, engaging in like smoking, drinking, maybe of a lower socioeconomic status. You just don't have the, the means to eat your 12 servings of fresh fruit and vegetables per day or whatever it is, you know? So we can have a bias inbuilt into the system as a result of the, the selection criteria, you know? So it is very hard to go through with it, to go through and parse out this stuff because on the, on, on the surface, it looks accurate. It looks like, oh, well, we've clearly found something here. You know, it's like this, this happens and this happens. Someone eat likes it. Someone eats like this. Someone eats like this. There's a difference in the outcome. Cool. But you're not measuring all of the variables. You're looking at one small thing. And especially like you see this huge critiques all the time about like different like epidemi- epidemiological research in terms of, They'll be like, oh, we categorize like processed meat as, you know, this person's eating a pizza and they have like pepperoni on the pizza. They'll just categorize the pizza as like processed meat, which is like, okay, cool. I understand that there's processed meat on that, but that's not exactly what people are thinking of when they think of like processed meat. It's like you're, you're categorizing the entire meal as processed meat, you know? So different things like that. Um, so healthy user bias is something that we have to be aware of or unhealthy user bias if you want to say. Um, do you mind to say on that, Gary? Um, no. Um, no, I'm happy with that. Fantastic. Look, there are also many more biases. We're not going to cover them. Many, today. many, 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 many. Like We could literally do an entire episode on every single one of these, and then, you know, we'd be here for fucking years, right? And ultimately, right, what do we do when evidence isn't available, right? Because th- this is what's going to be important for answering the question that we're going to talk about in the next episode, right? Which is, well, we won't get into that, but like, what do we do if we don't have evidence, right? So we touched on it earlier on, but what if science is just not there to support an intervention or what if, you know, we're perhaps not, not able to access in, in a, a bit of information because again, like we talked about science is not accessible to everyone and what do we do then gary if you don't have the evidence or again it's just it's never been studied this is completely new like again we talked about covid loads but it's the start of a new disease here you know we're like what do we do what do we do if we don't we've never seen this before you know you don't make a decision that's it (laughs) yeah you have to again this is this is where the uh risk management stuff that i discussed earlier becomes really really important um because like a, a, the easiest example of this is something like uh trauma surgery for example right something that's just super unpredictable because if you've got um if you have a procedure like let's say something that's elective like removing a gallbladder okay 
you can, you know, assess different ways of doing that. You could, you know, have, uh, you know, assess like, all right, these different hospitals do it in different ways. What are their outcomes like? Okay, let's do a randomized control trial, et cetera. And it's, it's kind of relatively clean cut in that these people have a problem with the gallbladder. We're going to remove it. And their anatomy is, there's going to be some variation, but most of it's going to be the same. However, if you've got, uh, if you're doing trauma surgery, you know, like there's no standard body that gets, you know, hit or in a car crash, for example, like, yeah, there might be some similarities, but everything's going to be a little bit different. And the way in which you approach that is going to have to be constantly changing. So let's say you open up, you open up the person's abdominal cavity and right. There's bowel that's been ruptured. There's all these like little ligaments that have been ruptured and there's blood here and there's infection after getting in here. And, it's just a, a total mess. You're not going to have a, a great, um, you know, very clear research to inform you in that case. But what you might do is take a risk mitigation uh, approach and an experience-based approach. Um, and of course, a knowledge-based approach where you understand what the basic anatomy of the bowel is supposed to look like. Let's repair it to maybe make it look like that. Um, let's mitigate risk um, by ensuring that the person has enough blood products on board, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, a type of a messy enough situation. Training is actually a lot easier because what we generally deal with are relatively low risk interventions. So the risk that we end up mitigating when, you know, or the risk that we end up exposing someone to when giving them a training program is relatively low. So there's a very low risk of someone sustaining a, a significant traumatic injury during weight training. Um, for the most part, it's going to be positive for their musculoskeletal health rather than negative for it. It's going to be a positive for their health rather than negative for it. So overall, you're not exposing them to that much risk. So what I would generally do in the absence of evidence, for example, in, in, in a training case, is that I would start with the closest approximation that we have to um, useful evidence. So for example, that might be that, uh, this, this individual, let's say we don't have, we don't have research that applies to Brazilian jiu-jitsu athletes, right? That's a good example. We don't have uh, research on weight training for Brazilian jiu-jitsu athletes, but we have research on weight training intervention interventions that work well for kickboxers and wrestlers. Okay. So we might use that information and say, right, this, there's probably similarities in what's beneficial for jiu-jitsu athletes and wrestlers. So let's take that intervention and apply it here and see what happens. And then you apply an iterative process over time where you tweak based on the person's individual response. So that's where the experience and the applying preferences come into the picture. Okay. Now, nutrition is a, a very similar discussion where you basically start with your you know, basic principles that you're aware of, because we do have evidence for, you know, basic principles, like, you know, protein is important. Like, you know, that calories <laughs> are important. Like that's not really going to change, but what you mightn't have available is something nuanced, like, uh, how to appropriately, um, plan a diet after someone has gotten really lean in the presence of, let's say, a difficult relationship with food, that's going to be a bit more challenging. But what you might look at there is, um, for example, what factors uh, reduce or what factors are associated with weight maintenance, weight maintenance, okay, after weight loss. So for example, 
a higher protein diet, partaking in exercise, etc. Okay, so those types of things might lead to better weight loss maintenance. Along with that, psychological support, um, flexibility, not maintaining excess rigidity, rigidity. So what you're doing is you're taking information from similar arenas or similar populations that have been studied, and then applying it from there. While doing that in accordance with your knowledge of basic principles in that field. When it was surgery, we know what anatomy is. We know basic surgical principles. We know that the, there might be more blood needed if blood has been lost. In training, we know that lifting weights is going to increase your strength. We know that um, doing more sets is generally going to lead to better adaptations than less. So we're using that in accordance with the evidence that is available. In some cases, there might be zero evidence available. But in training and nutrition, that's actually, we don't tend to deal with very specialized cases. Like it's not like a, very rare disease. It's, it's, it's similar principles for most people. So that's how I'm generally approaching the absence of evidence. There are some cases where I deal with that in my own practice. For example, people with certain types of injuries while playing a certain sport, while working a certain job, I just don't have specific evidence I can use to inform exactly how we should plan their training. So in that case, I use the, the kind of risk management philosophy in accordance with evidence that's similar, an example of that would be a current client I have who has patellar tendinopathy in both knees, but she also teaches fairly intense exercise classes and wants to continue with her weight training and potentially do other sports. That's quite a complex case um, to deal with, but I can still use research maybe on patellar tendinopathy rehab interventions that have been used in populations that may not have her needs but are at least somewhat similar. So I'll use that as the basis. And then I'll use my experience and her feedback to inform the rest of what we do. Yeah, hundred percent. So what you're saying is basically we use a little bit of those other things we talked about at the start, the sackets principles there or sackets yeah. fillers there. Um, and we go, okay, well, do we have some anecdotal evidence? Okay. We do have some anecdotal evidence. You have clinical expertise and experience. And then obviously the individual in front of you is able to give you some feedback about their preferences. And then also some feedback about what's working and what's not working, what they feel is working and what they feel is not working. You know, now the unfortunate thing is a lot of stuff in health and fitness, especially around nutrition and like longer term health chronic issues they're not intuitive like they're just not like you don't feel it like you don't feel atherosclerosis like you don't feel like oh my arteries are actually getting like thinner you know <laughs> like you don't you don't feel that you know um so we have to rely a bit more on evidence and best practices or we have to do stuff like get actual metrics like we have to do some sort of scanning ultrasound scanning on different organs you know you're like oh i think i might have fatty liver disease because obviously everyone always thinks that you know you're like oh it's definitely fatty liver disease no one thinks that obviously you don't know that so you might be like okay i don't know how should i measure this is it something that i should be worried about so we might need extra metrics to actually identify that stuff which again we won't touch on here but i just want to make people aware of it right now ultimately like that's pretty much everything we wanted to cover in the episode the reason we're doing this is because again we're going to do another episode the next one and um, but we ultimately want to give you an idea about what evidence is so that you can make better decisions about your health right and then also which is the more important thing because like i like you know being healthy but i don't necessarily care about if you're healthy or not <laughs> you know like it's not my job well it kind of is my job once you're my client but just the general people listening to this i like providing information but look ultimately you're allowed to go do whatever fuck you want to do right and so while making you healthier or giving you the tools to make you healthier is fantastic 
what I really want to do is give you the tools to more critically appraise other people's claims. Our claims, you know, whatever we say, you should still be critically acclaim or critically you know, critically acclaim it as well, but critically appraise it. Um, but also other people's claims. You know, if you're like, oh, they're saying this, what about you know, how do I interpret that? Ask them for evidence. What evidence do they have on that? Right? Ask someone who is clearly like, if you're like, oh, I don't know about this intervention here. Like, literally, you can type into any search engine. You know, you might find it on Reddit or some other forum type thing, and be like, you know, whatever the claim is, pros you know, whatever the claim is, cons or uh, defense against this or whatever. Like you'll find people who have written stuff out or made a video on a topic and you're going to have to sift through that stuff if you want to get the answer. And again, I don't have an easier way for you except to follow triage method because, you know, um, but other than that, look, it's a hard process to really start diving into this stuff and it just takes time. So Gary, do you have anything else further to say? Um, And if not, do you want to wrap this up? Time to wrap up. So if you need help, you know, you don't want to have to think about all this evidence appraisal and things like that. You just want decisions to be made for you or supported or guided. Then we do have coaching spaces available. You can work with us to address your pain and rehab issues. Okay. Maybe you've got an injury. Maybe you're trying to get back to sport after ACL rehab or something along those lines, whatever it happens to be, we can help you out there. You can join, work with our team. Similarly, maybe you are having difficulty with your nutrition, trying to lose body fat. Maybe you're struggling with your relationship with food. We can help with that. You might want to improve your performance, build some muscle, get stronger. We can help with that. So if you're interested, you can check out the information in the description box below. Get in touch with us. We'll get back to you and we'll let you know if we're a good fit for you and you're a good fit for us. Okay, so coaching spaces available. Furthermore, you can absolutely engage with all of our free content and continue benefiting from all of that. We've obviously got this podcast. We like to think it's useful. If you think so too, you can leave a review. You can also share it on your story or wherever you happen to share information. It might be private with friends and we would really appreciate that. We also have an Instagram page, Triage Method, and all of our coaches have Instagram pages. And we all put out really good information there. I like to think that would be of use to you if you're interested in health and fitness. So do that. You can also subscribe to our triage method newsletter where we send out exclusive content that doesn't go on our social media. It's exclusive to our email list. So if you subscribe, you can also access that. So that's triage. That's what we do. I'm Gary McGowan. This is Patty Farrell. You've been listening to triage method. Goodbye guys. Enjoy. Goodbye. <laughs>